Amen. Please be seated. It is a great uh, personal privilege of mine to be able to introduce our guest a preacher today. Uh, Dr. Joel Beakey is uh, a father, a husband, a teacher, a preacher, pastor, author, and a seminary president. He's the president and professor of systematic theology and homiletics at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He has been our guest speaker for the last few days at our Alliance of Reformed Churches conference here at, hosted here at Redeemer, and he will be speaking again tonight when we have a joint worship service with our brothers and sisters from those other churches. Uh, he is also the pastor of the Heritage Netherlands Reformed Congregation in the Great White Wilderness of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, he is an editor of the Banner of Sovereign Grace Truth, editor, editorial director of Reformation Heritage Books, president of Inheritance Publishers, and vice president of the Dutch Reformed Translation Society. He has written, co-authored, or edited over 70 books. He has contributed 2,000-plus articles to Reformed books, journals, periodicals, and encyclopedias. His Ph.D. is in Reformation and Post-Reformation Theology, which is a lot of theology if you think about it. Reformation and Post-Reformation Theology from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He's frequently called upon uh, to lecture at seminaries and to speak at conferences like the one that we hosted all around the world. He and his wife, Mary, have been blessed with three children, Calvin, Esther, and Lydia. And it's a great privilege and it's a blessing to have Dr. Beakey here to come and open the Word of God to us. Well, it's a great blessing for me to be here. I want to bring you the uh, warm greetings of Puritan Reform Seminary and also our own church, the uh, Heritage Reformed, and pray that God will continue to bless you and bless your ministers here and this uh, wonderful church, which has been such a joy to serve together with the other churches of this area this weekend. Turn with me, if you will, please, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We'll read verses 21 through 28. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet or fitting to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. 
Great God, we indeed ask for illumination in these moments into this peculiar and rather eccentric story in sacred Scripture. Enlighten our eyes, move our affections, bend the will of our hearts, that we too may have our faith matured even as we listen to this sermon. And grant that every affliction in our lives may be so designed such that all things will work together for good to them that love thee, the good of our own maturation and of thy glory. So be with us now, we pray, and bless us abundantly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when couples come to me and ask me to officiate their wedding, one of the first questions I ask them is, how good of a marriage do you want? On a scale of 1 to 10, what would you like? And they all say 10. In fact, one young man said 12. But when it comes to Christianity, I need to ask you this morning, what kind of a Christian do you want to be? Do you want to be a Christian who who barely makes the minimum criteria for partaking of the Lord's Supper and lives at a level of two or three, or or a mediocre Christian, perhaps, who lives at level five. One of the great dangers of things that are really valuable in life, like marriage and like our Christian faith, is that we may begin well, but we settle in at some kind of level below the privileges we have. And so many marriages, maybe your marriage, 10, 20 years down the road, has settled in at a, at a five level or a six, maybe a seven, but you've been content to, to leave it there and haven't worked hard at bringing it up to a, to a 10. And in our Christianity, that is all too commonly true as well. We settle for living so far below our spiritual privileges, the privileges of the promise of God and the covenant of God in all its grandeur and fullness. You see, my friends, if Jesus Christ is real, He's worth living to the full for. You've got to serve Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. He says of half-hearted Christians, I will spew you out of, your, out of my mouth. I'll spit you out of my mouth if you're neither hot nor cold. Now you may wonder, what does that have to do with this sermon and this story? Well, it has everything to do with it because the goal of Jesus with this woman is really to mature her faith, to make her a solid, mature, excellent Christian. How do we know that? Well, often the stories of Jesus, the miracles and parables of Jesus, can be challenging to understand. But commonly, Jesus gives us a hint in the last verse or two to interpret the whole. And this story is no exception. Look at verse 28 again. O woman... Great, or in the Greek you can translate it, mature is your faith. We know, and we'll see that in a moment, that this woman came to Jesus as a beginner in grace, and through this triple seeming rejection, but, 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 he keeps pushing her off, it seems, 
Jesus is actually maturing her faith, making her a strong Christian who believes in him alone for salvation. And that is a pattern of how the Lord teaches us also experientially to learn to live fully for him as we've been seeing all weekend. And so I want to look at this theme with you, how Christ matures our faith, but with these three thoughts in mind, by his apparent silence, by his apparent rejection, by his apparent insult. Silence, verse 23, rejection, verse 24, insult, verse 26. Now, when you consider how this woman came to Jesus urgently, a daughter is possessed with a demon. Where she came, at the very feet of Jesus, meeting him within the boundaries of Israel, coming from far. How she came, by true faith, Lord, Son of David, using the Messiah title. She obviously believed he was the Messiah, contrary to many, what many of the Jews believed. And why she came, begging for mercy. You're going to say with me, aren't you, this woman is going to get answered right away. And yet you read these amazing words, verse 23. But he, he of whom she had heard by way of rumor that he answers before we call, that he opens deaf ears and blind eyes and performs wonders and heals the sick and is Savior of souls, he answered her, not one word. What a trial. What an objection. Boys and girls, if you came home from school and you went to your mom and you were excited about something and you just poured out your heart and you told your mom what was going on and what you needed and you were urgent and it was really an important thing in your life, whatever happened that day at school, and your mom just went right on working in the kitchen, didn't say a word, what would you think? You'd be upset, wouldn't you? Why aren't you answering me? What an objection. This woman, no doubt, before she left home, had tried everything to have her daughter healed. She, no doubt, tried every physician in the area, tried the, the gods. You know, in those days, every, every little area had its own deity. Tried those different gods. Nothing worked. Then she heard of Jesus the Messiah. She must have told her neighbors things like, well, nothing works here. I'm going to go to, to the Jewish Messiah the Lord, son of David. And they must have said to her, no doubt, well, he's not going to help you. He's just the God of the Jews. He'll just handle the, the sheep of Israel. He won't, he won't look at a, a Gentile. No sense in going to him. But she's desperate. She's urgent. And she believes in Jesus. And so she comes to him. And now, it seems like her neighbors and friends are right. He doesn't answer her a word. What an encouragement to doubt. What an added objection to all her concerns and fears. And yet what a common experience she has. Is there any Christian sitting here or standing here this morning who has not had an unanswered prayer? Hasn't faced the silence of Jesus in times of great need in your life? It seems like he didn't answer It seems like he didn't hear. You've cried out with Jeremiah, 
I shouted, but he did not hear my cry. My prayer has not passed through. The heavens are as brass. You said with the bride who got up and searched about the streets of Jerusalem, I sought him whom my soul loveth and could not find him. Saw ye him whom my soul loveth. You see, if you're a Christian, the old Samuel Rutherford, 17th century Scottish divine, said, the silence of God is the bitterest ingredient you will have to drink in your cup of sorrow. Elsewhere, he said, the silence of God is hell on earth for the believer. Do you know that struggle? That silence? That challenge? Where is our God? As we sing in our Psalter back home, with anguish as from piercing sword, reproach of bitter foes I hear, while day by day with taunting word, where is thy God? The scoffers sneer. You see, if you're not really a believer, if Jesus isn't number one in your life, if you're not really living for him, or if you're a backslider and your relationship is a two or a three with him, you actually don't care all that much if Jesus isn't really close. Maybe the silence of God has never bothered you at all. Because as long as you have a good job, pretty good kids, good spouse, decent roof over your head, God can, well, keep his distance. Because really, deep down, you you want to run your own life. You don't really want God to be in charge of every detail, of every piece of your life. And you really don't want to dedicate your leisure time and your relationships and your hobbies and everything that is you. You don't want to dedicate it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you might tithe 10% of yourself to the Lord, but you don't want to give Him all. You don't really want to be a strong Christian. So, well, let Him be silent. But if you're in love with God and you're passionate about your relationship with Him and you, you want Him to be intimate with you. You want to know sweet communion, Lord, with Thee. I constantly abide. You want, you want that experience of, of knowing Him in an intimate way, not just with head knowledge, but with heart knowledge. You want head, heart, and hands to be in sync. You want your whole man to be dedicated to Him, serving the Lord with all that is within you, and communing with Him, communing with Him in a two-way communication, you through prayer, he through his word. You want that going back and forth every day. You want vital reality in your Christianity. And then you face silence. Oh, the burden of it. Martin Luther once said when he left home for work one day, this was after he was excommunicated, while he was trying to rebuild the church the Reformation, it wasn't going very well at a certain point. And he said to his wife, Katie, as he left, I'm afraid God is dead. He's so silent. And when he came home at night, Katie had drawn all the shades in the house, which in those days meant someone died. And Luther rushed in the house and said, Katie, who died today? And she said, well, you said this morning, God. And God used that to convict Luther. And it broke him. But that raises the question, doesn't it? Why would God ever do this to anyone? Why would he ever be silent to any one of his people or seem to be silent? 
Well, of course, we never know all the reasons why God does what he does for anything he does. God is God, after all. And who are we, the clay in the hands of the potter, to question why he's doing what he's doing? And yet we may ask why. Some people have said to me in my ministry, you can't ask God why. You, you can do anything that Jesus does because Jesus is perfect and pure in terms of how Jesus lived. And Jesus asked why, didn't he? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It all depends how you ask why. If you ask why with a fist, of course, you're sinning. If you ask why with open hands and say, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my ways, and lead me in the way everlasting, it's a blessed why question. Well, you see, our lives are like a big jigsaw puzzle, a thousand pieces. And you, you men, you may, you may be able to handle one or two pieces at a time and focus on one or two things and know what to do with them. But while you women, of course, you can handle four or six or eight pieces because you've got this extra sense that God has put in you for child-rearing to know where all your kids are and what's going on. And, but neither one of us, none of us, know how to handle all the pieces in our puzzle at once. But God sees the end from the beginning. He knows everything. But the good news is I can tell you two of the biggest pieces of that puzzle that are almost always true, almost always reasons why God appears to be silent to his people. For the first one, if you turn with me just a moment to John 11, John 11, you see there in verse 6 that Jesus, having loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, when he hears that Lazarus is sick unto death, abides two days still where he was. And he's only six miles away. How odd. How strange. What Did that verse ever puzzle you? Why would he come? If you had a close friend who you loved, and he was only six miles away, and you heard he was dying, wouldn't you go right away? You'd drop everything. Well, the answer is in verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. In other words, is Jesus going to get more glory by healing a sick Lazarus or by raising from the dead a beloved Lazarus? It's a rhetorical question. And so, translating to your life, does Jesus get more glory... If he were to answer all your prayers right away, first time you ask, like the health and wealth gospel preachers preach, which is so contrary to Scripture in so many of the Psalms, or does he get more glory when sometimes he waits to be gracious and weans you and tries you and afflicts you until you actually sometimes even give up in certain petitions, and then from the forlorn ashes of your prayers, he suddenly bursts an answer into flame and gets all the glory. He waits. So he gets the glory. But interlocked with that piece is another piece of the puzzle, that is almost always true, and that is this. He waits to be gracious to refine and mature and purify our faith. And he knows exactly how much to prune 
to bring us into the right place. Exactly how much? 20 years ago now, I've been in my church for 28 years, but about eight years after I was there, there were two retired elders who came over. They were going to trim the bushes in front of, the, in front of our house, and they, they got in a severe argument with each other how far back to prune our bushes. One man who did a lot of work on it said, you've got to prune them way down, way down, if they're going to be really mature, full bushes. The other man said, no, you're doing too much. You've got to just cut back a little bit. Well, one guy took a bathroom break, and while he was at the bathroom, the other guy cut him all the way down. And uh, unfortunately, he did too much, and uh, they died. But you see, God knows exactly how much to prune. He makes no mistakes in our lives. Whatever amount of afflictions He sends our way, they are exactly designed for our spiritual maturation. And what a critical lesson that is. You know, I have an elder in my church who, I can't tell you the whole story, but he went through surgery after surgery after surgery on a bum knee that was crushed in a fall. And it kept getting an infection, and they'd open up again and again and again. Then he was going to lose his knee, and it just kept on going for a year and a half. And every time he'd get the bad news again, I would just groan. But he wouldn't. He'd just say, my father must have more lessons to teach me. You see, God will make no mistake with you. Whatever afflictions you're under right now, those are peculiarly tailor-made and designed for you. That's how he handles a Canaanite woman. That's how he handles all his people all the time. I call it tunnel theology. When I was nine years old, I went with my dad from Kalamazoo, Michigan, to, to the Atlantic Ocean to pick up my grandfather in New Jersey on the coast of the Atlantic. And I'd never seen the mountains before. I'd never gone through a tunnel before, boys and girls. And this day, I was going through this tunnel with my dad, and... I got kind of claustrophobic, and I said, Dad, is this tunnel ever going to end? And he said, oh, yes, don't worry, son, it's going to end. When, it, when it, we come to an end, you're going to see a little pinprick of light, and then it's going to get bigger and bigger, and we're going to break out in the sunshine, and you'll appreciate the sunshine more than ever before. And that's exactly what happened. But 10 minutes later, we were in another tunnel, and then another, and another, And you see, that's what the Christian life is often like. God brings us from trial to trial. John Bunyan, the Puritan, said, When one trial doth me leave, another trial doth me seize. But all the while, God is maturing you. He's pushing you away with one hand in that dark tunnel. So it seems. But He's drawing you, as Peter said, with the other hand, secretly, by the internal work of the Holy Spirit. So that you learn to cry out to Him. You learn a life of dependency upon Him. You learn a life of maturation in Him. You learn to focus on Him. And the beautiful thing about all this is this. When you have true faith, faith will never turn its back on the Lord. Jesus is silent, but this woman doesn't go home. She doesn't say, my neighbors are right. The Jewish Messiah won't hear me. I'm out of here. I don't need him either. No, she desperately needs him. Give me Jesus, else I die, is what every believer can say. 
And so faith never can turn around on the Lord. It can never go back. Oh, there's nothing to go back home to but a demon-possessed daughter. And so in all of our trials, the Lord teaches us more and more and more. We need Him. We can't do without Him. Have you learned this lesson? Are you learning this lesson? Can you look back in your life and say, you know, I've needed every trial I've ever received? Because God had lessons to teach me in times of waiting and weaning and pruning that I never could have learned in times of prosperity. Well, you think this woman came through this period of silence. Now Jesus is going to answer her. But there's a second trial, a second trial. The disciples come and they say, send her away. She's crying after us. And then Jesus, again, there's this but here, this objection. But he answered and said, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's a double-barreled rejection. Now, we can understand the disciples' rejection a little bit. They're indifferent. They're proud. They're being selfish. They're saying, this woman's crying after us. Send her away, Jesus. We just came from Jerusalem where, where you were going to get arrested. And we managed to escape. And now we're on the northern border of Israel. And we're supposed to have some peace and quiet, some vacation up here, if you will. And this woman comes out and the streets are ringing with her noise. We're going to get arrested up here and thrown in jail. Send her away. Well, what a terrible attitude. First of all, they, she wasn't even crying after them. It was just their pride that thought so. She was crying after Jesus. But, you know, we understand all of this because they were sinful men. They're just in the wrong place. But it, theologically, we can make sense of it because all men but Jesus are sinners. But how do you understand Jesus' rejection of this woman? That's a challenge. I'm not sent but into the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she's lost, all right, but she's not a sheep. She's not of the house of Israel. It's basically saying it's not for you, woman. First I'm silent. Then I finally speak, Jesus says. I, I, it seems like I'm rejecting you. What a trial. Is she going to go home now? No, no. Faith never goes home and turns its back on the Lord. Never. So what does she do? Well, she doesn't understand this all theologically. She doesn't understand that Jesus, though he's the Jewish Messiah as a prophet, is still in his heart of hearts as priest, the Lord of all the nations and all people. And yet the Holy Spirit works in her something quite remarkable. She bows at the feet of Jesus, and she casts herself toward him and worships him and says, Lord, help me. What an amazing thing. Here she's being pushed away, and she comes closer. She can't do without Jesus. Is that true in your life as well? And as she comes, as she worships, you notice how her prayer gets simplified First prayer is, O Lord, thou son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. It's all about her daughter. This prayer, her daughter disappears. Lord, help me. Why is that? Well, Jesus is dealing with her. He's maturing her faith. And this is the way Jesus often deals with parents who bring their children to him. 
Isn't that true of the father of the, de- the, the demoniac in, in Mark chapter 9? He comes and he says, Jesus, if you could do anything, as the boy is foaming at his mouth on the ground, if you could do anything for this boy, please help us. And Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Suddenly, the camera moves from the boy to the man, and Jesus spotlights him, and he cries out weepingly, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Jesus deals with him. How many parents sitting here today have had been perfect parents? You've never made one mistake. And you've never been needy with your children. Of course, no one. Only perfect parents I know are those that don't have kids yet. You see, you and I have to learn that one of the, there are many reasons, of course, but one of the reasons why God gives us children is to keep us needy. Keep us needy. And dependent to mature our faith. You know, there's a man out east who came to me after I did a conference, and this guy was wanted to come to our seminary, and he was just talking endlessly about all his spiritual experiences and how the Lord was calling him, and then he had fears here and fears there. And it just went on and on and on. And I mean, much of what he said was good, but I just got this overwhelming conviction listening to him after a while that this man was just completely wrapped up in himself. And so he got all done. He said, so what's your advice, he said to me? I said, well, if I were you, I would ask God for a wife and try to have children. He goes, what? I want to come to your seminary. I go, look, brother, when God sends forth a man to be a minister, he sends forth a man who's been matured. And there's no better thing to mature you than to get married and have kids. And I came back three years later at that conference, and the first person that met me at the door was this man, and he handed a baby to me. He said, I named this baby after you because I took your advice. I got married and I had kids. I said, wow, wish all my people listened to me that well. But you see, that man actually was amazingly matured. Through it. In fact, he was matured so much that he realized his personality wasn't cut out for the ministry. And he followed Spurgeon's advice if you can possibly stay out of it, stay out of it. Because the ministry has to be men who feel called and compelled, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel internally and matured for it. You know, maybe, maybe. That wandering prodigal child you have, maybe that child has helped you spiritually to mature more than anything else in your life, dear mother. And maybe as hard as it is, as many tears as it's cost you, maybe, don't you think, God is maturing you through it, making you more dependent on Jesus. Lord, help me. What a simple prayer. But now it's about her, you see. Lord, help me. I'm I'm just a sinner. I need thee, Lord. This prayer has everything in it. Three words. It's like she appeals to the Lord of heaven and of earth. Never mind that he's a Jewish Messiah's prophet now. I appeal to thee as the priest of all nations. Help me. 
She reaches up into the heavens with the word Lord. She reaches down into the hellish mess within in the word me. And then she brings the two together through that mediating word help. If you look at it and understand it with a capital H, help is, of course, Jesus. Thou hast laid help upon one who is mighty, the Psalms say. And it's it's, it's a prophetical declaration of Jesus. You know, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian fell in the slew of despond, there's a man who came along and pulled him out. Remember that, boys and girls? Remember the man's name? Help. And Bunyan says in the margin, help is Jesus. Jesus is the meter. He's both God and man. He can bring the two together. Lord, help me. Sometimes our simplest, shortest prayers, when prayed sincerely and earnestly, are our very best. She has everything theology needs in a prayer in three words. Lord, help me. And what's most beautiful is she does it worshipfully. She worships him saying, Lord, help me. You understand that? The word worship comes from two Greek words, pros and kineo. Pros means towards, and kineo means to kiss, to kiss towards. It means all my affections, my entire internal being goes out to the object of worship. It says she collapses. She falls at his feet. She says, Lord, I can't do without you. Everything in me says, give me Jesus, else I die. I worship you. Lord, help me. Well, now you're going to say, surely Jesus is going to answer her right away. Now, she passes the second test, test of rejection. Now, there's one more test. One more test. But, verse 26, the third but, but he answered and said, it's not fitting to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. You say, what dogs? Dogs are what the Jews called the Gentiles. It was a term of reproach, like calling someone a pig today, a terrible thing to do. Why in the world would Jesus do that? Well, this woman had to learn, you see, that even though she recognized that she had no natural rights for a blessing since she was a Syrophoenician. She had no religious rights. She was a Gentile. No, no citizenship rights. She was a Canaanite. She still had not yet confessed that she was a vile outsider, an unclean outsider, a, a sinner through and through. Would she pass this test? This is the biggest one of all, isn't it? When Abner was challenged called a dog. He said, am I a dog's head? And he got angry. But this woman does something remarkable. She says, truth, Lord, I'm a dog. Yet the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So what's going on here? Well, what's happening is she takes Jesus literally at his word. And actually in the Greek, he uses the word little dogs with a little suffix on it. New King James Version translates it, actually, little dogs. And the difference is, in, in Old Testament times, all dogs were wild. In New Testament times, all big dogs were wild. Little dogs were being brought into homes as pets. And so what she's saying is, Lord, I'm not asking to be a Jewish person who sits around the table and gets full loaves of bread from you. 
I realize you're the Jewish Messiah, but you're on the border of Israel now. You're on the very border. Surely you're, you're, you're as kind as a secular dog owner, and I'll be glad to be your dog. You call me a dog, then let me be a dog. Let me be your dog, and just let a few crumbs fall off of this northern boundary of Israel onto this Gentile land, this Gentile heart, and I'll be satisfied. You don't ask for much, Lord, just a few crumbs. As long as they're from thee, and all shall be well. She argues with him with holy argumentation, as the old Puritans used to say. Wrestling with his own word. Taking that word at face value. Saying, if that's thy word, do as thou hast said. Truth, Lord, I'm a dog. Yet the dogs receive crumbs from the master's table. That's the way to be a spiritual beggar with God. Truth, Lord, yet. That would be, that's a good prayer theology. Truth, Lord, I'm a sinner, yet thou art the righteous one. Truth, Lord, I'm poor, but thou art the rich one who became poor, that poor sinners may be made rich in thee. Truth, Lord, I'm weak, but, but you are the strong one. Truth, Lord, I'm foolish, yet you are wisdom itself. Come to God. Tell him how bad you are, and then lay hold of how good he is and plead with him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That is beautiful spiritual beggary. Boys and girls, uh, when my dad was nine years old, he lived in a very poor home with my grandparents. Actually, it was no bigger than your double-car garage. And in their backyard, there was a, a train track, and often beggars would get off the train, come to the front door. That happened one day. And the beggar came and said to my dad, who answered the door, I need a sandwich. And my dad went to my grandma and said, there's a beggar in the door, and he wants a sandwich. And my grandma said, you go tell the beggar we're just as poor as he is. So my dad did that, and when my dad went to, went to shut the door, the beggar stuck his foot in the door. My dad couldn't shut it, and the beggar looked down, and he said, just one slice of bread. My dad didn't know what to do, so he, he went to my grandma, and he said, the beggar won't go away. The beggar won't go away. He wants just one slice of bread. Oh, my grandma said, he's a real beggar. Make him a whole sandwich. You see, and that's the way the Lord often deals with us, isn't it? You know, I mentioned Bunyan. Do you know that Bunyan made, made a list before God, once of his top, top ten sins of his life? And somewhere out near four or five was this. I knock at the throne of grace only once for something, and then I go away. I don't persevere in my spiritual beggary, waiting on God, having my faith mature through the waiting time the way I should. Too often our prayers are like salesmen that come to our door who don't care all that much. You know how salesmen are like. You, 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 someone rings your doorbell and you go to the door and, and uh, you look, no one's there. They just rang it once and you look out and the salesman's halfway to the next house and you, say, you turn around and you say to your wife, well, I must have been a salesman, didn't want us very badly. That's the way some of us pray. Instead of persevering. Stick your beggar's foot in the door and keep pleading for God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. He delights in loud, restless knocking at the throne of grace. And then, well, she passes his third test. Martin Luther says so beautifully, she ensnares Christ in his own words. He who loves to be so ensnared by sinners. 
And then we read verse 28. Then, after she's been matured through silence, rejection, insult, then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, mature is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. It's as if he takes the, takes the keys out of his own pocket to his own storehouse of grace and says, here, you can have them. You can do what you will. You can do what you will. Do what you will. Take what you want. It's as if he gives her two loaves of bread, one for herself and one for her daughter, figuratively, of course. And she goes home, and she finds her daughter made whole, completely whole, that means in the Greek language, whole physically, whole spiritually, the demon gone, and they can speak about Jesus together, that wonderful Savior who makes all things well. O woman, great is thy faith. You know, this woman puts us to shame. Let me say in closing this morning, you and I need to understand that she only heard rumors about Jesus, and she persevered with him. Some of us have heard thousands of sermons, and we don't have the maturity she had. And I begin with myself. Let this woman be a mentor for you. How to press on, plead on, cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you say, that's all well and good, but I've got one question before you shut down your sermon. How is it possible that this Gentile woman got all these privileges in the end when she really was unworthy? Well, did you notice on the outline that the words are, of my three points, are all having the word apparent in there, apparent silence, apparent rejection, apparent insult. You see, Jesus never really was totally silent or determined to be totally silent forever or to truly reject her forever or to insult her forever. And the reason why he didn't have to do that is because he took this woman's place. He bore the real silence. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me with a loud voice in agony? Deafening silence as he hung naked in pain, rejected by heaven and earth and hell and disciples and and, and, and godly women who followed him, rejected by everyone, trotting the winepress alone, absolute silence, God not pushing him away with one hand and drawing him with the other, but pushing him away with both hands so that he's thoroughly rejected everywhere to pay for your sin, dear believer, so that your rejections and your silences and your insults are only apparent. You only endure the shadow as you follow behind him. He endured the substance. So he was rejected, spit upon, mocked, rejected of God and man. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He was insulted. They put a crown of thorns on him and, and put, a, put, a, put a scepter, smashed those thorns down on his head and bleeding everywhere. And they blindfolded him and smote him across the face and spit on him and said, Prophesy, who smote you? Come down from the cross and save thyself and us, the thief said. He's insulted. He endured the real thing that you might endure only the shadow to be made mature and conformed to him and be conformed to his image. Ask God for your present afflictions and your future afflictions to mature your faith and to see every one of those afflictions as a maturation process to make you more Christ-centered, to fall more deeply in love with Christ, to hate sin more, and to walk in the King's highway of holiness more to His glory 
and your soul's maturation. Amen. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for this wonderful story in the Bible. And we do pray that thou wouldst mature our faith through all of life's trials, the ups and downs, that we would look to Jesus and run the race that is set before us, setting aside sin and looking to him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.